0: Well, today we're going to get into some possibly heavy topics, unlike the usually light stuff we deal with, you know, (laughs) um, addiction and death rate, drug death rates. Um, I guess we could call today, believing the unbelievable, the reality that can't be acknowledged. And I might even touch on a political topic or two today. Um, one thing that you and I often discuss is how the leading lights in the field, including reforming lights, believe that we sort of have a solution to the drugs and addiction problem. Mm-hmm. And the only problem we have is that not enough people believe in it, and their job is to convince more people to believe in it.
1: Right. The idea is we have the idea. We know what to do. Uh, we just need to scale it. Why don't more people understand this? Well put.
0: Um, now one in general, it's a little tough to estimate addiction rates in America for a number of reasons. I mean, we're not doing clinical assessments of everybody in America and then somebody will always point out, well, you're talking about opioids, but what about meth and what Mm -hmm. about alcohol? And then of course we can branch out
1: into all kinds of other areas, non-drug areas, if we wanted to, if we were really being thoughtful about it.
0: And a lot of people are very concerned and impressed with those, um, Uh, We've uh, obviously we've spoken about media addictions, electronic addictions, which some people believe are uh, they're recognized by ICD eleven, and they're um, in the form of gaming. And um, some people believe they're overwhelming the current generation of young people. But one number that's very concrete that can't be denied are the death numbers, Mm. and the death numbers from drugs. Um, have increased every year since 2000 with the tick back of 4% in 2018, but they've resurged now with a vengeance. And the last full year's worth is by the CDC is September of 2020 and the preceding year and there were 87,000 deaths compared to in 2018, there were 67,000 deaths. That's a remarkable increase in annual death rates. And people argue, our our good colleagues and friends argue, well, uh, MAT, Medication Assisted Treatment, hasn't been deployed uh, uh, broadly enough, but MAT is everywhere in America now. You can't go anywhere without being aware of it, every single person. And it's backed by both the Drug Policy Alliance and the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which might be considered the left and right wings of drug policy. So everybody's on board with it. And then we're faced with the um, question why are people dying in droves? And then the number, the annual death rate has roughly quadrupled due to drugs since 2000. Now, we often, um, West Virginia is leading state by a ton currently in drug deaths. In 2017, there, uh, the chair of uh, public health was a man named Dr. Gupta. Um, he studied every single drug death in 2017. If you're a male between the ages of 35 to 54, with less than a high school education, you're single and you're working in a blue collar industry, you pretty much are at a very, very high risk of overdosing. And I, I believe, I, I haven't totally checked those, Gupta is now working for the Biden administration. And I believe his job is to suppress painkillers. I believe that's the job he, he has. Hmm. And what he's talking about, of course, is a population of people. He's not talking about painkillers. And we, you and I, and much of America have talked about deaths of despair. I mean, uh, opioids are one avenue for those deaths, alcohol and cirrhosis
1: and suicide are another. Raul Gupta, who you're talking about, if for people who don't know which you've begun to describe, he was tasked to give a parsimonious, objective view of the landscape of uh, drug-related deaths, and of course he came up with. Well, I, I'm guessing you'll probably go over the figures and the the uh, co-morbidities that that occur. Much of which have nothing to do with drugs; they have more to do with lifestyle. And so, uh, I didn't realize he was part of the Biden administration. I'm embarrassed to say, and that is that is crazy. That he it was this like beacon of light for me, and I said, "Oh, there's a reasonable person who could maybe." help paint a more realistic narrative who knows more about it he examined right. every single death in the state with the most deaths he
0: knows and, more than any human being could know
1: and so against his own best work <laughs> he's now involved in a campaign for single solution magic bullet solutions that well you'll talk about it but they obviously well, I, I more think harm than getting
0: good. down to what this uh, session is about how do beliefs overcome reality I mean, nobody, uh, it's almost as though Gupta was ha- holding the hand of every person that died. I mean, you know, they had to die first before he studied them. But th- the people who run ONDCP, Office of National Drug Control Policy, they don't know about individual deaths. You know, coroners know about individual deaths. And they examine dead bodies. But at, at a larger level, people like Maya Salovitz and um, uh, your namesake, Zach Siegel, and even largely DPA, they don't know about who's dying. That's not sort of their business. They they operate at 20,000 feet. Um, and my argument is those deaths are kind of invisible. I mean, we really don't know. We have no idea of what the lives of people are like in Appalachia. I mean, they, the movie was just released, um, help me out, Zach.
1: Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember <clears throat> right now. Um, Hillbilly Elegy. Hillbilly Elegy. And he by the way, I, uh,
0: he we could devote a whole session to him. He's empath- he did a movie that was put out. It, kind of it didn't do well. Um, and it's not well done. He emerged he's actually from Ohio, but they had a direct link to Kentucky. His family was from Kentucky. And so you know, you don't think Ohio hillbillies, how's that work?
1: Mm.
0: And he escaped all of that. His mother was constantly involved with drugs and mental health issues. And in a way, his grandmother, who's sort of the star of the movie, uh, you sort of think she was responsible for that. But then he. Do you know his name? I, I'm blocking I'm his name. Who's the author of uh, Hillbilly? J.D.
1: Vance. Was
0: raised by his grandmother, and then he went to Ohio State, and then Yale Law School, and he became kind of a genius. Hmm. And he's he's now he regularly appears on Fox News, and he, he's lit up by your bootstraps guy because he's saying, "Wait a second, who had it worse than me? I didn't have a mother, or and a, and his father was absent, and you know, I went to Yale Law School for God's sake. So you know, obviously there are flaws in that argument. And not everybody's a genius you know I, I i'm sympathetic to stories like that i like stories like that
1: it's funny that uh obama was the archetype of a hero that he followed to chase his dream of picking himself up by the bootstraps but now he appears on fox news who who could be more critical of Ob- you know obama
0: <laughs> and and he came back to ohio he was in san francisco he, he was some kind of um I guess he became rich doing some kind of whatever those guys do, investment thing. Mm-hmm. And he came back to Ohio and he announced he was going to attack the drug and de- drug death suit situation. And I read that he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And I said, "Huh, wonder what he's going to do." And it doesn't say one thing what, about what he's going to do. And now, I believe he's talking about you know running for political office, which is fine. But that central issue in his own life—well, I made it. And my family background was, you know, trauma and in neon. How's that work? Um, and how did my grandmother, who was not a good mother to my mother, improve? Um, but those are invisible deaths. And in a way, you know, Vance doesn't really have contact with his own old life. Uh, he, he appears regularly on Fox News on, on what, what's the name of that guy's show?
1: Is it Tucker Carlson that you're talking about?
0: Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson doesn't know about life in Appalachia. Um, <laughs> so how do people avoid the topic? I mean, DPA doesn't avoid it entirely, but you know we've discussed this more than once. Uh, you know, Maya Salovitz recovered in her early 20s from a heavy-duty uh, heroin and cocaine addiction. Did the fact that she came from a well-off family and was attending Columbia University and has great intellectual skills, and she went on to Brooklyn University, which is a couple blocks from here, did that have anything to do with her recovery? Would you think? And one person that we've talked about in that regard is the co- Congressman Madeline Dean, her son Harry Kunnane, who've written a book under our roof: "A Son's Battle for Recovery, A Mother's Battle for Her Son." Eight years ago, Madeline Dean was devastated when she learned that her son Harry Kunain had repeatedly stuck out of the house with his dad's ATM card to steal a total of forty three hundred dollars. The good news, however, is he himself went to the Karen Foundation. It took a while. He recovered, and now he's a marketing outreach representative for them. How much would you guess the Karen Foundation charges annually? Uh, I mean, monthly for a stay there, would you
1: guess?
0: $30,000? I would think it's beyond that.
1: Hmm.
0: I would think it's about $40,000. And so we talked about the fact that Madeline Dean is – a tremendous progressive, I admire her tremendously. She's very much focused on eating quality and she's written a book, Under Our Roof, Our Son's Battle for Recovery, where she totes, she touts his recovery. And it only costs, you know, a couple hundred thousand for God's sake. What the hell's the matter? You know, and, and of course the best thing you can say about Hill Billyology is he did it for free. So, you know, and if you're going to rely on hundreds of thousands, we're, we can't provide ba- basic health care for people. So, <clears throat> uh, there are, why, I just, can you give a quick summary? I mean, Madeline Dean is saying, wow, my son went to the Karen Foundation and he had that horrible drug problem and I'm not minimizing it. And now he's better and he's a constructive citizen what great treatment how how would you respond to the idea that those who go to karen foundation do probably better than those in west virginia is it because they're so great the treatment's so great at the karen foundation well you're
1: giving me an alley-oop but i'll dunk it i just the conditions which bring people to be able to afford the kind of treatment that's offered by the Karen foundation in Philadelphia uh, generally have better outcomes, no matter what they do. So you can throw whatever you want into the wind about w- what strategies you're going to use to help improve your kids, or your family members, or your life. If you come from a place with enough money, enough resources, something about having that money and resources is going to help you along one way or another.
0: And Maya Salovitz went to a, 12 Hazleton type place up in Westchester. And then she came back and she stopped using drugs, you know, and you think, oh, and she herself was committed early on in her early 20s to that 12 step approach. But she's a smart woman. She said, well, you know, when you think about it, the fact that I, you know, come from a kind of an intact family with a lot of resources, I quickly got a college education. You know, I... I might've done all right, no matter what. She said she split on that. So I, but I, some people do die in privileged situations. And we're talking about that today. Um, and last week, Colt Brennan, who was a former University of Hawaii star quarterback died at 37. He, Brennan had a NCAA record for touchdown passes in 2006. Um, He was a national star. There's just a quote, he's dead. They did an obituary. I love the game so much that it controlled my whole life. Mr. Brennan said in the 2007 interview with the New York Times, he died last week in 2021, my whole life revolved around football. When I did good in football, I was happy. If I wasn't doing good in football, I was miserable. I don't know that we're going to go down that road right this second, but you and I could do a whole thing on what's the difference between having a purpose in life and having a a resort in life Mm. that's not necessarily, I mean, you can play football as there's only 20 guys in the world who are at the top of the professional football quarterback loop Mm -hmm. and there are tons of gifted athletes who don't make that leap and so the question is how do you go from being successful in one thing to leading a successful life and if you're counting on being a superstar in football baseball or basketball that's not in and of itself a life solution and life purpose right
1: so the the distinction you're making is so he had a relationship with football. I like using those terms. Um, I like it which, too. Which, which, which you've inspired. And it, it, you could. there's a big difference between um, using that relationship to escape from life and using that relationship to enhance or build on life. And, you know, you could be obsessed and perfect and great at it. You can feel like it's giving you a purpose, but the, the belief system around that matters and, and how you incorporate it into life matters.
0: And so my... I hate to resort to my family. You know, my daughter Anna was in high school, was a great sort of actress star. And my wife then said, Anna's not gonna end up being whoever, you know, the top five or 10 women actresses are. That's not gonna happen. Um, I mean, for one thing, you have to be incredibly beautiful. But, my old ex-wife and I weren't worried because Anna learned a competence lesson. And the competence lesson translated she started writing for people. Maybe someday she'll write for a you know, superstar actress, but you know, she's doing okay. We're back to Colt Brennan. Some of those football players have great names. So last week, Mr. Brennan was admitted to Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach. After he ingested the substance to believe to contain fentanyl. We've heard this story before. Yeah. It contained fentanyl and contained other things. I, Colt Brennan had recently finished a four-month course of treatment in a rehab center and was trying to recover from a substance use disorder. So he's 37. I mean, he was a super-duper star 15 years ago. Four months. In Hope Hospital, you know, that's that's going on a quarter of a million dollars, and he comes out, <clears throat> and he dies that weekend. Mm. So let's t- to put it mildly, treatment wasn't entirely a success. Now there's an ex there's a DPA, um, Zachary Siegel, Maya its explanation for people dying after they come out of rehab. Let me just mention a couple other examples. Mr. Brandon tried to enroll in the detox facility over the weekend. He had just gotten out of one. You know, I, I guess he could live there and some people try that, but it was full. After that, he met with some people at a hotel room and ingested the drugs. Now that story, is it the first time that We're telling a story of a privileged person who died and they went to one of these fancy rehabs. So, I mean, two big examples that you and I have discussed, Amy Winehouse checked back into rehab in the spring of 2011, emerging in May. She was found dead in her home on July 23rd. So she survived rehab by two months. That fall, the coroner announced that she died of accidental alcohol poisoning. Her blood alcohol level was over 0.40. That's a, you're going to harm yourself when your blood's almost yeah. alcohol. Good God. <clears throat> she wasn't a big girl. And another super famous, I, I mean, most people don't know who Colt Brennan is anymore, but Glee's Corrine Monteith overdosed on heroin and alcohol in July. 2- 2013, the star was found dead in the Vancouver hotel room Saturday in March, a couple months before, Glee cast and crew urged Monteith to accompany doctors to a rehab facility, which had been arranged by the show. And on April he, tw- 26, he had completed his treatment. How do you, how do Does Maya explain those deaths and say we should deal with them? How do you understand those deaths?
1: Let's see. Let me give the best interpretation of Maya's argument. And to some extent, there are elements of great truth in them. Um, So someone will go to these rehab facilities that preach abstinence-only treatment. And these people are away from their substance of choice for so long that they – feel that they when they leave first of all, the treatment's done no good for them they've done done nothing to help them in their normal life routines, so they just go away on a vacation somewhere and are not allowed to use a drug you know maybe not not based on their own interest it's not an idea that they generated it's kind of forced upon them and then they leave and the uh the urgency the yearning to do a drug doesn't go away, so they get drugs again and because their tolerance is uh, not high enough now because they have not been using drugs regularly, the, the whatever drugs they're using are so potent that now they overdose. They want to seek the high that they used to get, use the same amount of drugs that they used to use, but now their tolerance is uh, not equipped for that, so they overdose and they die. And I think that the ameliorative thing that Maya might want to throw in there is well, imagine if he was just on a maintenance drug to keep his tolerance at some level so that when he left, um, he, that this wouldn't happen. I think that's my addition, good version of their argument. And
0: in addition, Zach Siegel, DPA, and Maya would say, well, you should put him on buprenorphine or suboxone. Like so in,
1: in treatment.
0: After treatment. In, in anticipation. To maintain him, he should go away with a prescription. Right. So he won't be taking... Whatever he finds. Well, out.
1: I think I think their argument might be. I know Zach better than I know Maya. I know Maya too. Um, Zach and I have spent. We've gone to conferences and we've stayed at the same uh, the same Airbnb before. We've had these discussions, and so I'm pretty familiar with his uh, arguments. I think he might even say, "I can't. I don't know about Maya. That that person should be prescribed something like buprenorphine or methadone." before entering the treatment, while they're in treatment, so that they just prepare them for leaving with... uh,
0: Okay, it's the same...
1: Same same concept, absolutely.
0: And there are data to show. I mean, if you're getting a prescription from a reputable source, you're highly unlikely to die. Well, unless you screw with what you're thinking.
1: Right. (laughs) And that's the element of truth, I would say. that The logic makes sense. I mean, it's not crazy talk. There are data to show, so
0: and then they, so then they, and that didn't happen with Colt Brennan, and it didn't happen with Corey Montese. I, I believe we, we've discussed this. Amy Winehouse has prescribed tranquilizers. They'll do that sometimes to take the edge off, but. Um, a critique that DPA drug reformer critique is well, they're so abstinence oriented mm-hmm. that they can't see that a prescription for a substitute narcotic can be life preserving. And so, of course, the question that we then ask is so now what happens? They now you're not in prison anymore, you're not in rehab. And you know, you may or may not continue to take the buprenorphine. And there are plenty of examples of people who have prescribed it and then died anyhow later. Um, <clears throat> what, what you would call it, forgive me, for the famous actor died with buprenorphine all around him but he was taking heroin and drinking. Um,
1: Philip Seymour Hoffman?
0: Yes. In New York City, a couple blocks from where I mer- my daughter, Anna, would see her walking around the neighborhood. So you're faced with the same issue somewhere down the road.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How is this human being? So how would you and I, Corey Monteith got out of rehab and you mentioned, well, they take the same amount of drugs and and the same thing with Colt Brennan. Well, people go and hang out. With the people they used to hang out with. That's what people are like. They want to have friends and companionship and be liked and loved. And it so happens that the people that they hang out with take drugs, which is sort of how they got there. How would you, I mean, as a coach, as a counselor, as a helper, how would you prepare a person who's leaving rehab at a minimum to make sure they don't die? And- you know, I had a rehab facility and people went there and we, you know, I, it's conceivable. I don't want to speak for my co-owners that we might have let them drink. But but you can't have a rehab in America that people are spending, mm-hmm. ours was cheap, 25000 a month where people are allowed to drink. That's not going to happen. And so... We made it, we, they had a talk weekly. We had a full-time person whose job it was to be in touch with people after they left. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I trained that person specific. They were talent. The people who did that job were among our best people. And I remember originally I had to explain to them, you know, they're not, probably not going to abstain all mm-hmm. time. So let's work from there. So I mean, I mean, what kinds of um, things would you imagine if you were in a situation like that? Either working with the person to rehab, preparing them for afterwards, or working with them by phone after they leave.
1: Your question assumes that I would be okay with sending the person to rehab, but that's because that's the situation that we were just dealt here that, in the example you gave. Right. So I'm you're, tempted. To- so
0: you're saying you. You wouldn't send him to rehab in the first place. I'm tempted to reject,
1: to right. I'm tempted to reject that whole part okay. of it. But but in the spirit of the thought experiment, it's like at, at some point, if I were working with a person, maybe he left rehab, What say what I have in it. And at that point, I see a, one problem is that people are conditioned to believe that if they don't remain abstinent, I mean, that's the black and white. That's the binary. You, if you remain abstinent, good. If you don't remain abstinent, bad. You'll probably die. Uh, it's it, you, you're supposed to. Um, there's like no. There's wash, no and real.
0: And we wash our hands of it. And and in the um, we have an elaborate relapse prevention component, at which we used obviously in my rehab. Right. And where we explain to people, you know, you can get off the train at any station. Right. This first station being, well, I went to a party and people were drinking, and then I had a beer, and the last station is you're back on the street or you're dead that in between those two things there's a lot of stopway stations you can get off of
1: right so the reality is people leaving rehab okay they went to rehab they didn't do anything to help recondition their uh, their social life and their social life might be you know that's all they have why that's sort of part of the interesting thing about drug use it's the um what would you call it routine. social dimension it's a social dimension but there's also a routine to it something that's really predictable you've meet this see the same people have the same sort of uh oh, what what's it nah I, I can't think of the word so I'll well
0: i it. mean people are dull right I, 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 i'm a great example i mean people generally do the same thing right so they sort of know how to do one thing
1: right right So there's two things. One is trying to figure out what's an attractive alternative to these things. It's not like you have to ditch this. What are you going to do instead? But more like this is something you've done. Obviously, you've sought, you know, getting drugs is something that you've done. Obviously, you were seeking some sort of sensation or betterment or escape. And fine, fair enough. It sounds like that worked okay for you. On the other hand, let's expand that a little bit. And what else do you have? Who else do you know? What do you want to do? So there's there's one thing that's not, overtly saying hey you'll probably use again but don't worry you can you expand out you can just acknowledge that that's happened in the past and that's done something for him and you can expand out because the thing is i i think that um if the idea is that if you're using your bad not only are you going back to your same methodology for escaping or seeking something but you're doing it in the dark um you don't exactly have someone to reach out to to talk about it, or to think out loud, or to plan your life, because there's no one who wants, really wants to listen to that. Why would you call someone to admit that you're doing something wrong if that's where the conversation is going to start? So I
0: told the aftercare person, you know, you, no judgments, right? You don't go, oh, you're using it again. That's doesn't, and and everybody has to know that you're not going to do that. And, and another component of where you're going is. Cole Brennan and Corey Monteith, they died almost instantly after leaving rehab. Yeah. So you sort of wonder, they do, you know, exit planning when you get treatment, they 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 you're forced now, you know, after you've had abdominal surgery, they have give you a sheet of paper <clears throat> and it says, you know, don't lift anything, don't walk more, whatever. Yeah. You know, and they make you sign it. <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly counseling. It's more liability. Right. But you would think that, and we do it in like uh, life process brain, you would spend a week on like, okay, he's done okay in rehab. Now you're going to go back into life. And as with Colt Brennan and Cory what's that mean for you? And it meant, oh, I'm going to go out with my friends and
1: take drugs and drink. Even doctors though, you know, my father just had medical issues and he, he had a surgery and he left and he's not supposed to lift anything with one of his hands more than 10 pounds. And he's not supposed to do for a couple of weeks. He wasn't supposed to do much activity or walking, but you know, he said things that tugged on the heartstrings of some of his doctors and he'd say like, um, well, I have a granddaughter and what if she, you know, jumps on me or wants to, what if I want to pick her up? And I said, well, okay. If you're feeling, A, B, and C. Well, then you could pick up your granddaughter, give her a hug, you know, give her a squeeze. Just be let's be reasonable about this. You have to have a fallback position. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Everybody's not going to be perfect. That that's the surest thing in life. You have to say, okay, what's step two for not doing the things we told you not to
1: do? And now, forgive me because because there's there's almost certainly going to be some psychological. Um, advanced term for this. So I'm going to use total terrestrial common sense language, which um, there is that scarcity belief that you can have when you're not supposed to be using or you're not supposed to, whatever the drug was, you're not supposed to be doing it. So get it while you can get it kind of a thing. So I'm going to have to go back to real life after this encounter with my heroin dealer. And so I might as well stock up, might as well have a you know, killer experience, right? Well, that's sorry, that was not meant to be a pun, but might as well have a great experience now and do as much as I can, or, you know what I mean? And so you, uh, yeah, that... that
0: We would instead say, um, we don't want you to do what you were doing before. I mean, we're not here to tell you you can drink some or snort some cocaine, but we don't want you to, you know, spend all night, you know, On a bender, and here's what we once you you have to get out of that situation at some point, and even if worse comes to worse, and you're in a really bad situation, you can still pull out of that tailspin. and And what we're conveying is self efficacy and managing your own life because that's out there in the world. That's what all you've got.
1: And so, Um,
0: There's no direct umbilical cord. I mean, we have telephone coaching now and everybody's getting into that. That's, you know, the pandemic has changed therapy. And everybody sort of says, you know, when you think about it, kind of being able to call somebody up, that works a lot better than making the appointment, you know, a month in advance. to go downtown, get a parking ticket and go to therapy.
1: Now it's good to have someone to triangulate with. You've got your sort of, people who are trying to care for you or care about you. Um, Then you have sort of your normal style and routine with either drug dealers or people who you were hanging out with. And, And there's a dialectic already, but if you have some third party, first of all, it's good just to be able to get the thoughts out and talk. It's also not a horrible thing to kind of lean on that person when you're trying to describe what you're up to, to those people who care about you to say, well, my professional, whatever it was said this, so it's that way that those, let's say, as parents, a kid out of rehab and said, well, I used again. Don't worry. I talked to this professional and we, we talked about how am I. It's, the conversation is much more inviting. Well, well, you like, have
0: to, we had a kind of training program for the family right, right. of people right, um, where we say, you know, we don't exactly. I mean, you've already spent 50,000 bucks. Maybe there was something that you weren't fully aware of but we don't believe in this, you know, once you use your out of control thing.
1: Right. So I'll just put a pin in it. Um, that I've just got done working with a family. Um, and this comes up all the time, but they were, um, their son is an adult now, but still teenager. And they were talking to me about how, well, every time we've taken all of the resources away for him to be able to use, he just kind of does anyway. He'll get it fronted to him by somebody without pain or he'll steal something and sell it and get. And, uh, so we're worried that when he comes back, he might do it again. How do we keep him from doing it? And I reflected back, but ultimately we came, they generated the idea that, Oh, I guess maybe if uh, there's no way to get him to stop doing it by just restricting things, maybe that's just not the energy, the way we want to focus our energy. Maybe we want to just focus it on keeping an open dialogue. And so they were, um, it didn't take much to to get them to sign on to. It's quite possible that your son might use again. I mean, let's just keep up with the attractive alternatives and building a life kind of a thing that, that he's on. But have a, let's have a plan for if that does happen and, and maybe don't make such a huge deal out of it, the using part. Maybe make a, the deal out of are you being safe? Are you sticking with your plan? Which you could do both. It's possible to have road you know uh, speed bumps along the way that either set you back or could maybe coincide with your plan. Like Carl Hart would say, there's some responsible adult drug use that could happen. So um, that working. And they like are
0: parents, right? If you're a parent, your kid hasn't always done his homework. Right. So Madeline Dean is shocked to learn that her son's been stealing $4,000 to use mm-hmm. drugs. And then, Oh, you can freak out and send him to rehab or you can say, can, can we talk about this, you know? First of all, you're stealing my money. How about getting a job? You know what I mean? We don't, we're not gonna let you take our money for not without telling us, but you know, what are you doing? And what's that all about? I mean, it's sort of a window into reality, but in the freak out addiction syndrome, you say, oh, we're out of control. We can't deal with this. And then the logic goes, well, let's send them to rehab, but they don't teach them how to deal with it either. Right. And then they get out of rehab. And somewhere along the line, a human being like, you know, Maya Solovitz is going to have to learn to create a social and a professional life that no longer <clears throat> centers around hanging out with people that use drugs. And, so, you know.
1: So uh, buprenorphine, methadone are. There is a logic to saying, you know, that's a predictable, reliable dose of something that you that someone could take, and maybe that would be helpful. Um, and what you're saying, in addition to that, is fine. But at the same time, you do that for long enough, that, that's a stopgap, and so you run into the exact same problems. So you you do that for a while, you're maintained on this drug. And then assuming nothing else changes, then what do you do then? You're just faced with the same problem, but now the person's medicated.
0: So everything we've said is so commonsensical, you know, people could shut off their screens and say, well, these guys are just saying the most logical things that if I didn't know anything about addiction, I would, you know, figure out on my own. And that's, we're getting back to the original topic, which is why are so many people dying? Mm. And yet, people are claiming such great success for our current treatment options. Why are people believing the unbelievable? And, you know, one question we've asked is, well, how do you know, it traces back to the political question. A large segment of the American population believes that Joe Biden didn't actually win the election and they're using all of their energy to prove that the election was stolen. And those of us in liberal New York, you know, laugh and sneer at them. But in fact, that is, that behavior is sort of standard human behavior. The American Psychological Association, sort of, they ask the question, why do people believe fantasies or believe the unbelievable? And they list three things, motivation, identity, an ideology combined to undermine accurate human judgment. Do those ring a bell with you? Motivation, identity, and ideology.
1: Do they ring a bell? Yeah, it seemed like important pillars. How
0: you know how did, how
1: do those feed into
0: even the most advanced people saying, "Well, you know, obviously M A T works. We know it works." We have that little side issue that people are dying in greater numbers despite the spread of MAT. Um, <clears throat> how to, and they maintain they're kind of happy to adhere to that philosophy.
1: The ideology is there for the taking. The identity part is if you're a good, if you write good prose and you understand the ideology, then you're kind of accepted. And if you're a good write, really good writer, you could be at the top of that game. And so it's re, you're, the idea is reinforced. We're talking about MAT here. And, and, MAT is reinforced.
0: If you're in a, and I've been at groups like this. I write about it in my memoir. I was in one in the fall of 2017. Everybody got up and said how great MAT and repressing uh, painkiller prescriptions were, suppressing them. And every single person put up a chart in 2017 showing drug deaths in New York City and New York State were increasing. Hmm. And I tried to get recognized, but I'm, you know, I'm I'm the uh, fly in the ointment kind of person. Andrew Tatarsky, who I've known for decades, you know, refused to acknowledge my presence. And my question would be, if we're doing such great stuff, and some of it was good. I mean, um, Denise Pao, who worked for the city of New York, the health commissioner who I ran into, who the mayor introduced me to. And, you know, they have immediate response teams. That right. has to be good. How could that not be good right. for, you know, uh, and, and, you know, giving everybody nalox, naloxone, which is, you know, a reversal drug, that, that can't be anything but good. Right. And yet drug deaths are still going up. And so <clears throat> there's a list of things they're doing and some are, you know, are obvious. They're so practical, you could, you'd could, you be crazy not to do them. And some of them have a kickback. And the kickback that you and I are aware of is telling people you don't have the self-efficacy. The downside to MAT is conveying to people that you don't have the self-efficacy to manage your own life. And the fundamental solution to addiction and to survival is your belief but you do have that capability.
1: You know, just like um, with Trump and Biden, countries split around 50-50 on that. It, vote, the voting block is split split around 50-50. So there's always going to be fuel for one side of the aisle or the other to continue pursue the ideology because it seems like so many people are against it. You've got to, we have to convince these people or we have to oppose these people. So um, there, there goes the, unwillingness to say to look at that chart and say okay we there you just said there's obvious life-saving measures we should take these are obvious we have to fight for obvious life-saving measures and so that's good and then you get to a conference and say yay we did it we we fought for those obvious life-saving measures they're expanding great then but how can you not look at a chart that says but more people are dying than ever and say well i wonder what else we could at the least say i wonder what else we could do or what's going wrong because it just still seems like there's such a fight, there's so much to fight for. You've already you've already accepted that there's, um, that's the motivation part. But you've already accepted there's motivation to keep running with that story and not expand it because there's still work to be done.
0: And one reason that I'm acutely aware of, it's what my memoir is about, my lonely quest to change advocacy. If everybody around you believes something, you believe it. Hmm. That's reality. I mean, you know, the hell with that goddamn chart that I just put up. Everybody in this room believes this other thing good enough because really human beings, ironically, I mean, it's the same thing that killed, you know, the Glee star and called Brendan the football player. The people you're with are your reality. And mm-hmm. some people's reality, and going back to hillbillyology, is life-defying. It's not going to make your, it's not, it's okay to say, well, it's good to believe in, you know, Kentucky has hometown, va- home back home values as well. But if you're going to die, that's not adding up in the correct way. And um, taking that to a higher level, we have people in, drug policy who adhere to a set of values that everybody agrees on, but people are dying. In general, it's not them and their children. Even in bad cases like Madeline Dean, you know, they're probably gonna end up on top of the pile because they're top of the pile people. You know, she taught, She's a prof- she was a professor before she was a Congresswoman. Her husband's a successful businessman. People like that in general have a better prognosis and so it's, it's not only possible, but natural to be blinded to the larger reality by your local reality, your personal reality. That's just mm. the way people are. You must observe this whenever there's some debate about the 12 steps. People always write in the same thing. Oh, I went to the 12 steps and it didn't work. Or I went to the 12 steps and it did work. That's, that's the reality. Mm. You, can't, you can't argue with that. And they believe that, but at some level, we're supposed to figure out, well, you know, peach pits don't really cure AIDS. You know, somebody's job is to kind of add all these teacups up and, and come up with something that works. So we, in our, you know, in our modest little way, uh, one, we've spoken about this before, it's, it's becoming a little bit more activated. We have a colleague, one of our coaches, a man named Aaron Ferguson, a man who, uh, you know, my favorite quote from Aaron, when I asked him in an interview with you, um, <clears throat> are you traumatized? He just laughs. And he says, oh, you know, I, I've i had plenty of trauma, but I'm not traumatized. Which yeah. is, you know, Aaron's life, was they, they would reject it as a movie because it just had too many crazy things happen. In it, you know, nobody will believe this.
1: Right. <laughs> Can't even so
0: make it up. Um, we're uh, he's actively engaged with an organ people don't realize the ex- mat is now you know people are against big pharma mat is big pharma mm-hmm. and i'm not against or for big pharma i don't care about big pharma but big pharma is now pushing Sloxone. So, like, so. and the way that works you, you know People pay money for it, and people use it, and they get money for it. And so the question becomes: How do we combine? What we've been saying is, the danger in external therapies is that you subvert people's self-efficacy. Right. And you know, just going straight to the common sense level, we say, obviously, if it's going to prevent some people from dying, because if you're taking suboxone. Retherno, you're not gonna overdose on whatever the hell they were taking, you know. Keith uh, Monkeith was taking, you know, he, he had heroin and alcohol in the system, you know, and it's a bad combination sometimes. Um <clears throat> called Brennan had whatever he, he he might he probably wasn't taking fentanyl, he was taking something else that had fentanyl in it. Mm-hmm. So um what 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 we're about is how do you give something that can be safety providing without it depriving them of their sense of self empowerment?
1: That's tricky. And but it needs to be done. I mean, that's the that's the logical step, next step forward.
0: And I mean, I, I mean, Aaron has a quick way of doing. It. We we call what we do the empowerment life process program, MAT model. I mean, without even trying, our coaches deal with people who've been on MAT because that's just everywhere. A, I mean, B, among the things I've learned from Aaron is human beings are human beings. And a lot of people don't like being on Suboxone or Methadone and you know that. Mm -hmm. And so he informed us that on their own, maybe half of the people, after two years, cut you know kick Suboxone or they do it on their own because a lot of people have a tendency or a trend to want to be free. And so the essential issue is how do you see MAT as a tool and not as the be all and end all? That's the re that's the goal to make use of something that has a potential and allow people to use it or encourage them as the case may be as a tool, hopefully voluntarily, but for them to recognize that they're still
1: the tool user. I was this is maybe a non sequitur, but it 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 coincides with thing, the themes that we've been running with. I remember reading literature when I knew, I mean, I knew nothing. I had no interest in talking about theory, about drugs, addiction, how to improve people's lives in that realm. And then I got interested in it and I got interested in it because my own story, which I thought was, um, well, I just kind of kicked the drug on my own. So I thought that was like revelatory. Um, And then I started reading literature from DPA, from Maya Solovitz. And that really actually really helped me to uh, understand the concept of helping human beings a little bit more and you know away from the standard mainstream media sort of model of things um the problem was that
0: so DBA and Maya kind of are going down that
1: road
0: and then they halt
1: that's exactly that's exactly what I was about to say i love critical thinking i can't stop doing it it's a slog i get stuck in a bog once in a while And then I have to realize I'm probably doing, I'm probably thinking about something wrong. And so how do I do that? And that's, that's, you know, critical thinking 101. You want to move on from where you feel like you're getting stuck and you want, you gotta be a little honest. I'm not perfect at it, but you need to be honest about um, what your own confirmation biases are and, and uh, why you might be reinforcing your own bad behavior and step back from it. I love that. And I think that that's what you're saying is that we're stuck not being critical thinkers anymore. At one time, this is progressive and a critical thinking sort of push forward. People have gotten kind of comfy with the ideology. And it's not very comfortable to think beyond or to attack you your buy own. You in a case.
0: package by putting a coin in a slot machine and it comes out all together. Yeah. You know, we, in outgrowing addiction, we list a set of values that enable people to avoid or overcome addiction. And, um, I, they're uh, being healthy is one it, being frugal because it's hard to come up with an addiction that doesn't cost you a lot of useless money mm-hmm. um two others one is welcoming thinking you might call it critical thinking you know i personally and entertainment for me you know, and I realized this during the pandemic when you're allowed to sort of roam around and sit outdoors and everything's outdoors now in New York. I can sit at a table and look at people walk by for a long time. Uh, I used to have a friend, uh, uh, Mark Rosenthal is a big art curator in Philly. And we used to take to New York and sit in Hector's cafeteria and just look at people and say, I wonder what they're up to. And just, We would spend hours doing that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They had free sick pickles and free seltzer. Um, And so, intoxication is of limited value to me. I welcome thinking. And one other thing that kind of will always help, I think, is the value on achievement. Um, and, And it's one of, this is one of the trickiest issues in dealing with privileged people. In general, I mean, privileged kids have their own problems and people recognize them they're competing for a few slots to go to Yale and Harvard They're tense, and they're anxious but I was reading about the daughter of Les Moonvez, who was the head of I think CBS but he got me too and his daughter now co-manages a chain of restaurants and the way that happened was she got some kind of degree I, I'm I don't know these facts exactly. Like she went to BU and got a communications at Boston University, got a communications degree. And so a guy, uh, some famous chef decided to start a restaurant and um, he don't I hire her. And I'm guessing he's thinking the fact that her father's head of CBS, maybe that helps. And so she did the PR stuff and then they had an opening night and she showed up and they didn't have enough wait staff, enough uh, cleanup staff. And so even though she's a rich girl by any standard, we call her spoiled. She started cleaning up tables. Now why would she do that? There's sort of the privileged, you know, motif, but then there's the achievement motif that people often in high performance places learn, which is, you know, you gotta make this work. Your job is to succeed and yet have to do whatever it takes to succeed. And that has downsides in certain situations, but that's called achievement motivation. And you know, when you look at people who got better, you know, you look at Johan Hari and Maya Salovitz and Mark Lewis and Carl Hart, well, Carl was never addicted. They're all achievement people. I mean, they're all people that had this drive to be successful. And so, you know, among the values that, you know, are thoughtfulness, mindfulness, uh, the opposite of consciousness and a value to want to succeed and perform well and to make some kind of contribution to earth. So again, we're back to talking common sense uh, and we believe that people have that ability in them and sometimes they've lost it or sometimes they've been discouraged but you're only going to have a world. I mean, of course we're back to, is it, what's Vance? What's his first initials of uh, Hillbilly Ellison? J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance was an achievement guy, <laughs> you know, and it, he lived uh, like a coal mining daughter's life, mm. but you know, he did well at school. And his biggest complaint was he was working at a auto parts store and a guy there whose girlfriend was pregnant um, didn't come in every day, but he had a cell phone because he got some kind of payment for the child. And Vance is going, wait a second, you have to work to make the money. Yeah. So have a cell phone. So, you know, we're, we're only talking common sense. We're only talking basic human values. We're only talking your belief in yourself, your belief in certain positive outlooks in the earth. And our ability as a society to create those options is our only solution for addiction and drug deaths.
1: That was a full episode today. I think that was excellent.
0: Beginning Dan.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: A, a salute, you know, uh, and it ties into what we're trying to do with Life Process Program. Hopefully, there'll be more news about our uh, like LPPMAT concept.
1: Thank you so but much, more Stanton.
0: Than I-